You know you've got to sing along. Don't you know? This is the Cabinets HR Podcast, hosted by Jason Cabinets. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners, founders, and people in tech startups in HR. If you fall into one of these categories or are just curious about them, then this is the podcast for you. You will gain great insights from these great conversations. The Cabinets HR Podcast is brought to you by Cabinets HR. At Cabinets HR, we deliver HR to companies with 49 or fewer people by automating the HR process. We believe that you don't need a full-time HR person to receive full-time HR expertise. Hello, and welcome to the Cabinets HR Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Cabinets. Our guest today is Chuck Blakeman. Chuck, are you ready to be great today? Yes, sir. Chuck is a serial entrepreneur, best-selling author, and a world-renowned business advisor. Be sure to check out his, his weekly Eek Magazine articles and his TED, TED Talk on the emerging work world. Chuck's first book, first book, Making Money is Killing Your Business, was named the number one rated business book of the year. And his most recent book, Why Employees Are Always a Bad Idea, has been named the top 10 business book of the year. He is currently working on his next book, Rehumanizing Dentistry by Giving Everyone the Brain Back. Chuck started and built 12 businesses in his 12 years in the United States and internationally, and now uses the experience to help business owners and executives create success. His company, Crankset Group, inspires and transforms your approach to business and your future. Chuck's a rare combination of successful business owner, speaker, and author who inspires leaders and provides simple tools to transform their business. Chuck, thank you very much for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jason. I'm looking forward to this. So, Chuck, with everything you're going on, what is the one thing you're focused on right now? Boy, that's and that's a great question because there's a lot that I could be focused on. But I'm focused specifically on rehumanizing the workplace. That's our that's our passion. We got to get the, the way that we're doing work. We got to change the way we're doing it and get it back the way it was before the factory system. So that's my focus. So what does that mean, rehumanizing work? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, uh, before we before we had vac- factories, work was done very differently. For the first time in the history of man in 1850, more stuff was made in factories than in homes and shops. And for the first time in history, people left home to go to work. Commuting was not a thing. It was not normal. And when they left home, they were taught when they got to the factory, <clears throat> leave as much of you at home as you can. Only bring the part of you to work. They will pull the lever that will run the machine. We've got machines that don't ask for time off. They're not human. They don't get sad. Uh, they don't take vacations. They don't get injured. And we would like you to act as much like a machine as possible because we're just going to attach you to a machine. You're, you're a necessary evil. We need you to run the machines. But ideally, it would be best if you didn't exist. So if you could just be a machine, that would be great. And we dehumanized work in the, in the process. We took the humanity out of work. The biggest thing, Jason, that took the humanity out of the work was simply that uh, when people left their shops and their home offices, they were no longer able to make decisions. They went to work, they plugged in, and they became human doings and left the human being at home. So for 175 years, we have dehumanized work. It was an unbelievable 
uh, advance in technology, all the great toys and comforts we've got. An amazing thing came out of the industrial age, but it really was a destructive force in the history of humanity. And so we're, we're still recovering from that. 90 plus percent, Jason, 90, I'd say 95% of all businesses in America still run with a factory system operating system at their base. And then, then uh, managers and business owners, I think, you know, ask, how come our employees don't show any initiative? Well, you're not allowing them to show initiative, right? Yeah, I'm sorry, how can I do what? So, so by doing the factory level work, you, they, the owners always complain, or managers always complain, well, my workers are not showing any initiative. Yeah. yeah. Well, how can yeah. they? Well, that's the point. Exactly. How can they? You don't let them. I, I, I've studied what makes us adult. It's not hard. There's this fancy thing called agent of responsibility. The non-fancy way to say it is I get to make decisions. That's the difference between being an adult and a child. Adults make decisions. Children don't. And when you put me in a factory, but you know, think about it, Jason, before in factories, I made shoes. I needed to know everything about uh, leather and tanning leather and wood shaping wood and metallurgy and uh, stitching and all. I mean, it took me years to learn everything I needed to know about how to make a shoe. Then you put me in a factory and in three minutes, you taught me how to put a left, uh, a, a nail in the left boot and pass it to the next guy to put another nail in it. You took all the decision-making out of work, and that took the adulthood out of work. And now, what did you, I'm going to sit around and wait for you to tell me what to do. That's what children do. So there is no initiative. And people are complaining for the last 30-plus years. Gallup has done surveys of, uh, uh, of uh, the workplace, and it consistently, uh, month after month after month, only a 30% of the people at work are actively engaged. The rest of them are phoning it in. Gee, what a surprise. And you got to think, if you're doing the same thing over and over and over again, you know, eight days, eight day, eight hours a day, seven, five days a week, you have to zone out, right? I mean, you have to be zoning out. And next thing you know, you don't know you've done the last hour. You just think you've done the right thing, but, you, but you've zoned out somewhere else. Oh, yeah. My, my mother taught me, Jason, she was an industrial age artifact. And my mother taught me, Chuck, you do not go to work to enjoy your work. You do not go to work to make friends. You do not go to work to, to find something meaningful. You go to work to make some money. And then you can come home and do something meaningful, do something, build friends and build relationships and have purpose. And You don't have purpose at work. You just go to work, turn it off, get your eight hours in, get your money, and then come home. That's what we, that's the only option you had in the factory system. It was so dehumanizing. You really did have to go brain dead in order to put up with it. They say like the current generation, the millennials are like, you know, just totally the opposite. Like they want meaning at work. And they're, then it's that show, they're willing to like take less money to do more meaningful work. And I think this is, you know, disrupting the work, the work process. What do you think? Well, here's, here's one of the fascinating little bits of research. Somebody bothered to actually do the research that, that said, they asked the question, what motivates all the different generations? Baby boomers, exes, millennials, what motivates them? And what a surprise. They found that every one of them are motivated by the very same thing. We all want to make meaning. We do not want to make money. We want to make meaning. The difference is this. I grew up in the shadow of the industrial age with a mother telling me that work was not supposed to be meaningful. And the business place told me work was not supposed to be meaningful. And so I just went in assuming that, you know, I, there's no option there. 
millennials did not grow up in the shadow of the industrial age. They will not put up with going to a job. They don't want a job, which just pays the bills. They want work, which is meaningful and adds value to their lives and is integrated into the rest of their life. And and so we're really going right back to where we came from before the factories. We want to reintegrate work back into our personal life and make it a meaningful part of our lives. So Chuck, changing the subject a little bit, can you explain how making money can actually kill your business? Yeah, that's that was my first book, and that's the that's a book that that lays the foundation for all of this because the the industrial age taught us the only way to make money is to spend more time at work. There's a physics problem with that. You only got 168 hours, so how do we make more money? And in less time, that is the business owner's game. I went through five businesses, Jason, and couldn't figure that out. And it was my sixth business. I've done 12 businesses in eight industries on four continents. And my sixth business, I finally figured out how to make more money in less time. That became the foundation of that book, Making Money is Killing Your Business. And the idea behind that book, again, is basically that if you go to work just to make money, you're likely to make very little of it. The, the people who go into business to solve a problem, <clears throat> excuse me, to make meaning, to do something bigger than making money, they're the ones who are much more likely to make money. So if you're trying to make money, it's not going to be good for your business, especially when you're not making much of it. Go to work make to, to make money or to make meaning. Get into something you're passionate about and watch what happens. Yeah, I know like most people, they'll say, oh, I'm going to start a business to be a billionaire. And those are usually the quickest ones, the first ones to quit and give up because, you know, they don't have the passion for it. Yeah, uh, Richard Branson did not become a billionaire because he wanted to become a billionaire. Steve Jobs said famously, <clears throat> excuse me, I got a little something in my throat. Steve Jobs said famously, I did not wake up in the morning thinking about being the richest man in the cemetery. I woke up thinking, I woke up thinking what cool technology can we build next? It would have an impact in the world around us. Bill Hewlett at Hewlett Packard, he said, we knew what we wanted when we were done. We wanted to have a major impact in the world of technology. These are meaning-oriented passions. They are not money-oriented. So, Chuck, you've started 12 businesses so far. Is the process the same each time? Does it, get, does it ever get easier? No, it, it, well, it doesn't get easier. It might get faster in some cases. I might, I might have some shortcuts. I might learn some things. And when I see things coming, I'm able to correct on them quicker. But uh, I ride a bicycle and somebody famously asked one of the, uh, one of the top bicyclists in the world, does it ever get easier? And he says, no, you just go faster. <laughs> and I think the same thing is true here. Uh, I've started 12 businesses and it's, it's still hard. But uh, you, you learn things, you learn some principles, you learn some tools and technologies and some methodologies. And that's what in, what's in that book, Making Money is Killing Your Business. Here's, here's the things I've learned over the 30 years of building 12 different businesses that would maybe make it easier for you to build one faster, but it's still going to be hard. You know, the old adage is true. If, every, if this was easy, everybody would do it. So, you know, here in the United States, there's this stereotype that we're the most entrepreneurial country in the world. We just have something different. Is that really true? Are there- it, is really, it is really true. And we're losing some of it. And uh, partially, part of, it, of what makes it true is that we, we did not come from a monarchy or any kind of dictatorship. There is an oppressive, mental blanking, mental draining uh, effect that comes from having a highly hierarchical political system. And the more hierarchical your, your culture is, the less likely you are to be innovative. 
We just talked about it at work. People are mad because their people don't take initiative. Why don't they take initiative? Because we're imposing a really high, uh, a really heavy top-down hierarchy on them, and that teaches them not to think. So we really do have a leg up because we've come from a much more egalitarian, uh, democratic way of viewing the world with a much flatter structure of the people, by the people, for the people, is the foundation of a great entrepreneurial culture. And we're losing that. The more that we, the more that we uh, uh, create a system that, ca- that causes dependency on the government, the less innovation we'll have. I, and people love to look at Norway, and I'm not. A, I'm, a, you know, I'm an independent. I'll just put it out there. <clears throat> but uh, people love to look at Norway and say, "Look how great Norway is with their socialism." Well, give me one good in, innovative thing that's come out of Norway in the last hundred years. Nothing. Uh, even even Nokia, which went bankrupt, was a state supported thing. So we are entrepreneurial and I want to keep that. And part of it is going to be to to keep the struggle alive. Let's let's make it not let. We do not want to be taken care of from cradle to grave. We've got to have some kind of struggle because stress is good. That's how you build your muscles as a runner or as a bicyclist. Stress is good. The lack of stress, a complete lack of of of, uh, of a need to actually strive for something uh, damages the way that we view the world. What's that saying? Get comfortable with being uncomfortable and always be ready for change. That's a great saying. Yeah, get comfortable being uncomfortable because it's the change, it's the, 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 the complexity and change of the world around you that will, will make you into the, pers- the person that will be innovative and the, the kind of person who can run the company that you want to run. Now, let's talk about you said one time, uh, I think it's, a, it's always a bad idea to hire employees. I want to talk about that. Yeah. Project. Yeah, well, and, and, what I, and I truly mean that. That's the title of my second book, Why Employees Are Always a bad idea. And the reason for that is that people are not a bad idea. <clears throat> but Jason, the concept of an employee, the way that we've worked it out through the factory system mindset is a terrible idea. We don't want employees. We want stakeholders. And a stakeholder is a very different mindset. A stake, an employee is a codependent child waiting for someone to tell them what to do. A, a, a stakeholder is someone who function, comes to work functioning as an adult, ready and willing to take ownership and be self-motivated, self-directed, and make decisions as part of a team. Uh, they're right in there fighting for the whole thing. They see it as their business, not somebody else's. And we've got to re, you know, that's part of rehumanizing the workplace is getting people to where they go from being uh, uh, employee, childlike employees to, to adults. The key to that, Jason, is getting rid of managers. I know that sounds really radical, but again, uh, they only existed in very specific niches before factories. The first mention of managers is in Hammurabi's code 5,000 years ago, and he's talking about slaves. If people do not have any motivation to be there, then yep, you got to stand over them with a whip and make them work. Then you see that, that mindset of management flow into serfdom and then into the military and out of the military into the factories. And we were still treating people like slaves essentially in the factories because those people don't want to be there. So yeah, they need to be managed. Well, guess what? People actually do want to have meaningful work. They really do want to make an impact. They don't need to be managed. They need leadership, which is a very different thing. Don't tell me what to do. Work with me together to figure out what we want to do together. I don't want to work for you. I want to work with you. 
and, and let me figure out how this thing works. Let me make decisions, not in a vacuum, but as a team. And that, that's going to re, uh, re-energize people. So that's a stakeholder. We want people who come to work saying, I want to make decisions. I want to have an impact. Management is nothing more and nothing less than pure, unadulterated codependence. The definition of a codependent is a person are doing for others what they could or should do for themselves. That's what managers do. So we got to get rid of that whole idea of management, turn managers into leaders, and teach them how to train other people to make decisions. Yeah, that's a good point. There is a big difference between stakeholders and employees. I know a lot of owners, business owners are like, man, I wish my employees were more invested in my business or they were more involved or they just cared more. Well, you're paying like $15 an hour. You're like, yeah, well, well, it's not even it, it's not even the page, Jason. It's it's more. Yeah, I want my people to be really invested in my work, but I'm not going to allow them to make any decisions. I'm going to still come into work every day and say, "All right, do this. Put this nut on that bolt. You do that. You do that." And it's me telling them what to do. That's what managers do. The mantra here is simple: managers tell, leaders ask. So a leader would come to work and say, "Well, how do you think would be the best way to make that shoe?" What do you think the process should look like? You know, if you ask the people doing the process how to improve the process, you're going to get a much better process than some manager sitting in, a, in an office who never does the process. It's, a, it's really pure and simple. And, and I'm not talking pie in the sky. There's thousands of companies who run without managers. We've documented them for up to 60 plus years. This is not a new idea, but it's still a very small percentage of of businesses. So you're right. I want my people to be engaged and totally working with me, but I won't let them. You, you, You can't have it both ways. You can't make all the decisions for other people as if they are children and then yell at them because they won't be engaged. I can't remember who said it, but someone said they, they tell their workers, I need like this done. And then I say, I let my workers surprise me, you know, because they're going to have always have a better solution than I do. Oh, yeah. The smart leaders will always say that, that uh, they're, they're not going to impose anything on people. They're going to ask them what they think first. And we're going to work together to come up with a solution because the people running the process are going to be much better at figuring out what needs to be done. And more importantly, Jason, if they are the ones who develop the process, they're going to own it. People commit to what they create. Or another way we say it is input equals ownership. If I have no input in how I work, I have no ownership in it. So you tell me how to work and then you get mad at me because I have no ownership in it. Input equals ownership. The more input I have, the more ownership I'm going to have. It's a real simple equation. Chuck, you also do mentoring. When you're mentoring someone, how can you tell, how does uncle you take you to tell that this person is actually going to listen to you and take your advice or like others or just taking the block? Yeah, it's a great question. I look for degrees of progress. I look for minimal degrees of progress because some of this stuff we talk about is it uh, seems like radical change. And for someone who's been used to being treated like an em- employee for 30 years, it could take them six months to 18 months to turn back into an adult. So I can't just go in and flip a switch and say, okay, you're now all stakeholders. I'll be on the golf course. I want to see progress. I want to see people measurably saying, yes, I want to get there. And this is hard. I'm scared, but I want to continue to see progress. To me, if someone will hang in there and, and uh, continue to progress, I will be patient with them. But as soon as someone turns off and says, I don't want to go any farther. I like this uh, childhood that I've got at work. 
then uh, there's no mentoring that can happen. It's it, the old adage here is work with the willing. I can't force people to change and they can't force me to change. I have to come willing. And if they come willing, man, the, the job is half done. You, you've heard the old adage, uh, 95% of, of, of her fixing an alcoholic is for the alcoholic to, to admit I'm an alcoholic. Same thing, you know, I, I need help at work or I need mentoring. So that's where, that's what I look for. Who is willing? Chuck, I understand you have something, something for our listeners today. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'd love to, uh, to give anyone who, uh, who emails me or uh, connects with me. My, my uh, website is chuckblakeman.com. My email is real simple. It's chuck at cranksetgroup.com, C-R-A-N-K-S-E-T group, crankset, like a bicycle, chuck at cranksetgroup.com. Email me there and I will give you a, uh, I will send you a free hard copy of my, either my first or my second book. My first book, Making Money's Killing Your Business, was the top uh, rated business book of 2010. And Why Employees is always, are always a bad idea was the top 10 book of 2014. So whichever one might be interesting to you, I'd love to send you one of those and I'll send you a, a free copy. We'll do the shipping, the whole thing. Uh, you buy those on Amazon for 30 some dollars, but we'll give you one for free. Chuck, can you share your social media link so people can reach out to you? Yeah, ChuckBlakeman.com would be the best place to look at me or Chuck Blakeman is my Twitter handle and uh, you can find me on Facebook at Chuck Blakeman and same thing on LinkedIn. So we kind of got a theme here. Yeah, for our listeners, we'll have the links to his books and his associate media on our show notes and you can find our show notes at www.cabinetsatrblog.com. So Chuck, we're coming into our talk. Can you provide us any last minute advice or wisdom for our listeners on anything you'd like to talk about? Uh, I'm kind of manic about this. What are you, what are you alive for? Mark Twain didn't actually say this, but I love this statement that he gets attributed. The two most important days of your life are the day you're born and the day you figure out why. If you haven't had that second day, go take a long walk and figure out why. That's a great advice right there, Chuck. I really like that. Chuck, thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. You bet, sir. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for listeners, thank you for your time as well. Remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cabinets HR Podcast. Be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and TikTok at Cabinets HR. Also check out our weekly live streams at the Cabinets HR Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, and Periscope, where we focus each week on an HR topic important for small business. These are every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time and last around three minutes. To join our weekly HR email newsletter list, send us an email to jasoncabinets at cabinetshr.com. Thank you, and remember to be great every day. You've got to pump it, don't you know, pump it. You've got to pump it.